pray. Lord, it is for your glory and for our great joy that we meet together to sing such songs as we just sang and to listen to your word proclaimed and to fellowship with the saints, your people, and to grow in Christ. Lord, um, your great love is unfathomable. Words creak and groan under the weight of trying to describe your love. And even though we have biblical terminology and good theology, we need your grace to grasp something that is beyond our grasp. Help us, Father, to see the glory of it and to rejoice in it and to be changed by it. We ask, not just in spiritual ways, but in practical ways, but not practical ways to the exclusion of deep spiritual change in us. Lord, I'm not sure what to ask for, but you know what you intend to do today. Do it by your Spirit with power, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Those who have preached from this pulpit over the years have often expressed two basic concerns. On the one hand, we understand that there are those in the congregation who think they have been reconciled to God when in fact they have not. They don't know him. They have religion. They don't have Christ. On the other hand, we are also concerned about those who fear that they have, that they have lost salvation or never had it. They are lost when in fact... They are absolutely secure in Christ. But they've missed that. They don't have that security. They don't have that deep knowledge that when they stand before God, they will be justified. And already are justified. But they will have peace with God on that day. Not only peace with God, but joy in God on that day. But they don't understand what God has revealed about them and they, they need to know. In the passage before us this morning, I think Paul's primary concern is the latter group. Those who think that somehow they are lost when indeed they are eternally secure. Apparently, some of Paul's original readers had come to understand and joyfully embrace the gospel that Paul preached. But in their heart of hearts, they still wonder. They wonder if justification by faith is sufficient to save them from the wrath of God. Remember, Paul is writing to these believers. Surely, most of them probably are, are Gentiles, but it used to be a Jewish church there in Rome and there were certainly many Jews, and the influence of the Jewish people was strong, and Paul was combating legalism and, and things like that, because that is nothing to put your hope in. That's a recipe for eternal judgment. 
And growing up in that kind of environment would leave you with that sense that I've got to be I've got to be good enough. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be... And it doesn't have to come from a Jewish perspective. It could come from some kind of evangelical teacher who adds things to the Word of God and children are, are grow up under that kind of authority that, that gives the impression that you are not good with God unless you are good enough. And secretly, in their souls, even though they may come to good churches like I trust this one is, in their heart of hearts, in their, in their moments when they're honest with themselves and they're perhaps talking to the Lord or wondering about the Lord, they, they wonder, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I believed enough? Have I repented enough? Was I sincere enough? And the discouraging answer always comes back the same. No, 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 I haven't done enough. I haven't believed enough. I haven't repented enough. And how do you measure sincere enough? The reason I think a lingering fear of judgment is in their collective thinking is because it's because of Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And if you have your Bible there, that should be open to Romans chapter 5. But verse 10, Paul assures them that they will be saved from the wrath of God. And my question is, when I see a, a clear statement like that, I want to ask, why? why? Why are you saying that, Paul? And I think this is, this is his lingering fear, that, that they think that there's a possibility that they will not be saved from the wrath of God. And so the reason he feels compelled to make such an emphatic statement is because of that lingering doubt. As I study this text, it, it seems to me that this is the spiritual center of gravity for this part of the letter to the Romans. Paul wants his readers secure in Christ. He wants his readers and you and me to be fully on board. He wants us to fully understand and embrace our eternal security in Christ. He's determined to prove to us that the gospel of justification by faith alone is sufficient to take us all the way home. All the way home. No fear of judgment. No purgatory. Which, by the way, is never mentioned in the Bible. No half measures, no near misses, just absolute security in Christ. Not in self, not in what you do or have not done. That's what he's determined to convince them of. That's what he's determined to convince you of. Now, if you were the Apostle Paul, how would you do that? How would you approach this challenge? How would you seek to convince your church family that they are not insecure, having placed all of their hope 
for life and death in the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you say? How would you argue for that, for their benefit? Where would you begin? Well, we don't have time to speculate here. Let me just tell you where Paul begins. He begins by directing their attention to the awesome, towering, eternal, unshakable, indissolvable love of God in Christ, who is our Redeemer and Lord. He turns our attention to the love of God. And I know you're, you're thinking too shallow right now, and so I'm going to help you with that. And you're going you're gonna to want to come up for air in a little bit because we're going to go deep. This is what I want us to discover together this morning. I, I, I want to show you that the bedrock foundation and origin of justification is the love of God. Does that surprise you? So let me say it again. The bedrock foundation and origin of your justification is the love of God. The love of God for sinners like you, like me. And yes, it's astounding. I want to establish this as an unshakable fact in your heart. And then I want to show you next week, I know it's in your notes for this week, but that's the way I roll. <laughs> Next week, I want to show four qualities of divine love that should remove all doubt. But I just got wrapped up in this study over the last few weeks, and it, it just kept growing. But before we wade into the study, let's take a moment to do what we always do. We're here. This is a Bible church. It's not just the center of our name. It's the center of our preaching, right? So let's stand together and read the Word of God. Let's read this text in context, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Now, I've already covered verses 1 through 5, but we're going to read the whole thing in context, beginning of a chapter. Here we go. Therefore, let me just say, Paul's pointing back to everything he had said so far. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and in Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone may 
even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Love it. I hope. Go ahead and be seated. <laughs> that would have been funny. You know, some of you were standing, some of you were sitting, and a bunch of you were in between. That was... <laughs> see things that you guys can't see. This is what the Lord says. I mean, we could almost walk, maybe not, we could almost leave right now, and this text seems so plain to me now. <clears throat> Beloved, there is so much that we could expound upon here, and books, believe me, book after book after book have been written on this topic, but I, I really want to demonstrate that the ground of your justification, this is what Paul has been arguing, that if you have been justified, and, and he doesn't say it that way, even in the text that we read a moment ago, twice he says, having been justified. His assumption is, you are justified. You who have put your hope, eternal hope, in Jesus. You don't need the law to save you. It cannot save you. Not God's law, not your law, not anyone else's law. But I really want to demonstrate that the ground of your salvation, the bedrock of your justification, is not your goodness, your law-keeping, your penitence, your humility, and listen carefully, not even your faith. You say, wait a minute. We're 30 sermons into this, and every one of those sermons you told us we are justified by faith alone. And now you're saying we are not justified by faith? Well, it depends. It depends. It depends on your understanding. If you understand this rightly, there is a very fine distinction here. We are not saved by faith. Rather, faith is... I say we are not saved or justified by faith because faith is not the ground or the origin of our salvation, of our justification. It is merely... Faith is merely the means by which we receive justification. That's why we so often, I think all three of us preachers here, or four sometimes, because, you know, 
Rod can do everything, and he'll be up here someday. But faith is often referred to here from this pulpit as the empty hand of faith. It is the means by which we receive what God has offered apart from works. That's Paul's distinction. Apart from works, we receive it by faith, but the ground, the foundation, the origin is not your faith. Otherwise, you would have to believe enough. Rather, it is the love of God. Love of God is the foundation. Faith is the means by which we receive justification, but the ground, the bedrock, the final and ultimate motive and source of our salvation is the free, unfettered, sovereign love of God. From this starting point, it it should be intuitive and fairly obvious that the love of God for sinners is quite different than the love that we have for one another. I actually want to speak to you about five qualities of God's love that should convince us that we are eternally secure in Christ. But for most of this sermon, I just want to talk to you about the first quality, namely the nature of God's love. And feel free to write all over that note sheet because the other, uh, the other points don't come into play today. So let's talk about the nature of God's love. You know, sometimes when I'm preaching, I want you to respond by doing what the text says, right? Uh, in Sunday school, we talked about Christian dating. That sounds funny every time I, I think about it. But what does the Word of God say about that? Now do that. But sometimes we come, and what God wants us to do is merely to marvel and humble ourselves and simply drink in and receive what he has to offer us. As I mentioned, God's love for us is quite different than that of our love for one another. When Chris and I were dating in college 35, 36 years ago, I knew her well enough to know that saying I love you would be out of bounds until I was ready seriously to make a commitment. And so for many months, we both refrained from saying those three magic words. Magic words that we wanted to say and wanted to hear but didn't say and didn't hear on purpose. And then one night, I took her out on a date and presented her with something wonderful. It was a giant chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) (laughs) And on that giant cookie... There were three wonderful words spelled out in beautiful white icing. I love you. It melted her heart. Just as planned. And the rest is history. (laughs) And now you young guys know how to do it. (laughs) 
and you're welcome. <laughs> the point I, I want to make here, if I still have a point, <laughs> is that the first time I said I love you to my future wife, what I meant by that was really important. What I meant, what I was saying in these few words was, uh, there is something about, there is something about you, your character, your beauty, your sense of humor, your adventure, all of that and more are so attractive to me, I don't think I can live without you. I don't want to live without you. I would be deficient without you. You fill up the empty places in my life, and I want that to continue forever. Now, there's nothing wrong with that kind of love, and you should have that kind of love for the person you intend to marry, and, and even after you marry him or her. But it is this love that I just described to you is significantly different than the love of God. It would be a mistake to think that within the three persons of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, that there can be any deficiency or lack that can be filled or satisfied by another. There are no hollow places in God. There is nothing that we could give to him that would contribute to his essence. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. So allow me to propose a, a question. What was God doing for all eternity before he created the heavens and the earth? The stars and the moon and weather and dirt and flowers and people too. What, what was he doing before all of that? Well, I'll summarize this to make it as simple as I can. For all eternity, the eternal Father was loving his eternal Son. We understand, do we not, by now that to love is to give. Love is to give. If you know anything about Islam, and I, you don't need to know much, but they say that Allah is pure love. And, and I would take issue with that because even in their own theology, he was the only one there was. If there is no one else, you do not give. You have no one to give to. But in terms of the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, they were actively, joyfully, loving one another. You think, well, that's that's. That's a little too deep for me. 
Maybe not. Let me just familiarize you or remind you of a text that's familiar. John 17, verse 24, one of the great texts of the Bible. Jesus praying on the night that he was betrayed. And he's on the Mount of Olives and he's talking to the Father. And here's one of the things he says. In fact, uh, if you've got your Bible in your lap, real quickly turn to John 17. I, I really want you to see this. John 17, verse 24. John 17, 24. Then we'll come back to Romans 5. Here's what Jesus says to the Father. This is often referred to as his high priestly prayer. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created the world? He was loving, the Father was loving the Son in an infinite way. The whole of Scripture teaches us that to love is to give. And for all eternity, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were engaged in actively loving one another. Hence, at Jesus' baptism, you remember, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. The Father calls out from heaven. And you remember what the Father says to the crowd about the Son. He says, this is my, what's the next word? Beloved Son. This is the Son whom I love. Be astounded. And they were. They didn't understand it. God is saying, you listen to him. He is the son of my love. And I want to suggest to you that this is a picture of what the three persons of the Trinity were doing before creation. Michael Reeves masterfully handles these theological treasures when he writes the following. It is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love so, and so binding them together in fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was an active, loving you say, well, what, what exactly were they doing? I don't know. <laughs> this is mystery. What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? 
and the angels and everything. He was actively loving his eternal son. And that divine propensity to give spilled over, as it were, resulting in the creation of all things. I mean, imagine a big basin. And in it are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their spirit, their, their they're loving one another, and, and as the big basin moves, it, it, it spills. And the result of that is all things, everything that exists, everything created, the goodness of God spills over, and there it is. He speaks, and light comes into being. Life comes into being on earth. It is because he loves that he created Entering into a relationship with us does not add anything to him. Entering into a relationship with us does not fill any empty place in God's heart. In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam after creating him, this is not good. It is not good for Adam, for man to be alone. No one can say that of God. And in a very real sense, he is not alone. For eternity, he was three persons. Nothing about God is incomplete in any way. He has no needs. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He owes nothing to anyone. So... How should we think about the love of God for sinners? Because the Word of God says we, He clearly loves sinners. Unlike man's love, the love of God is uninfluenced. No one compels God to love anyone. He is uninfluenced by anything outside of himself. We must be careful to note here that God's love for sinners is not something that came into being after we repented, as if he hated us beforehand, but now since we have believed enough or loved enough or repented enough, but now he accepts that. Thank you. I feel better about you now. I love you now. I think that's how people think of God. Nor was it an unexpected visceral response in the heart of God because of our pitiable need. God didn't look at us and say, oh, those poor people. Look at that. They ate the fruit, and now there's trouble. I'm going to have to kick them out. Man, why, why didn't they do that? I guess I'm going to have to go save them. There was none of that. There's none of that. Rather, the love of God towards sinners is as old as God himself. And can you even use the word old of an infinite being? 
as long as God in his infinitude has existed, he has loved you. It is not simply that God loves, but that God is love. He is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, though it is certainly that, but an essential characteristic of his very nature. God doesn't love people because he finds us beautiful or smart or righteous or attractive in any way. There is nothing within man that causes or compels God to move toward us, to do good to us. God loves because it is his nature to love. Let me prove that from John the Evangelist. First John 4, 8, we read the utterly amazing declaration that God is love. We do not read that of any other attribute of God. We don't read that God is mercy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is mercy or God is grace or that God is wrath. But we do read that God is love. When theologians speak of the love of God, they refer to it as one of the infinite perfections derived from his nature. Love is an essential attribute of God. Theologically speaking, loving is not merely what God does. It is an essential characteristic of who God is. If there is love in the world, it proves that there is God. He doesn't love us because he found something attractive in us. He loves us because it is his nature to love, and it has been his nature to love from before the creation of the world. That's why Paul says that the Father has delighted in you since before the creation of the world. He has set his affection on you. He has set his saving grace upon you from before the creation of the world. Unlike human love, God's love is unfettered. Divine love is sovereign. It is a love motivated exclusively by his own sovereign will. He does not wait for us to love him. He does not wait for us to believe. He initiates. He draws. He pursues. Because it is according to his nature to do so. Hence we read in 1 John 4:19, We love God. Do you? Do you love God? Let me tell you why you love God. 1 John 4, 19, we love God because he first loved us. He loved us first, and it wasn't even close. 
And this is where justification begins. God loved us. This is where it all begins. The love of God is the origin and ground of your redemption. This is why your justification is secure. It is as secure for you as the love of God is secure. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always loved you. And he will never change. The atonement that God made for us to satisfy his own wrath against sinners was birthed by the love of God. I just want to take a few minutes to show you that in the New Testament. Let me say it again. The atonement that God made for us to satisfy his wrath, that is, the sacrifice that he made. The atonement, when we talk about atonement, we talk about covering sin, remedying sin. The atonement that God made for us to satisfy his just and holy wrath against us was birthed by the love of God. And so let's look at some scriptures that demonstrate that. Uh, 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Now, make the connection to the atonement. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God satisfied his own wrath by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Because of his love. God's love for us is not a response to our love for him. We see this very clearly in Romans chapter 3, where we read that, that long list that describes sinful humanity, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none, and, and it goes on and on. But one of the key statements he makes is, no one seeks for God. If you have come to know Jesus Christ, it's not because you pursued him. It may have felt like you were pursuing him. but The reality was he was always the one pursuing you. God is always the initiator in this relationship. God is always the initiator. He, he loved us first. So if you have been justified in God's sight, it is not because of something you did, but something that God did for you and what God did to you. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, for our sins. Your justification, therefore, is grounded and anchored and secured and immovable in God's sovereign, unfettered love for you. 
And that love was ultimately demonstrated in sending his son to die in your place. Consider another famous text, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You just can't imagine how controversial that statement is among many good brothers. It's just so hard to get your head around. God loved the world. But I'm not going to try to solve that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Say, tell me about God's love, okay? I can, I can tell you about the magnitude of God's love. Consider this. He sent his son to die in their place. Again, sinners receive eternal life as a divine act of sacrificial love, sovereign love, unfettered love, unmotivated love, unimposed love. More specifically, we should note, we are saved by the love of the Father. You say, well, of course. No, 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 it's not of course. If you come from a Roman, Roman Catholic background, it's probably not what you've learned. I mean, if you want to fellowship with God, and if you want to talk to God about your needs, you don't go directly to the Father because He's hard. He's unapproachable. And you can't go to the Son either because the Son is maybe a little more approachable than the Father, but still He is the Son of God. He's the King. And so who do you go to? You go to Mary because not even Jesus can resist desires and the impulses of his mother. Here, Apostle Paul is saying, no, this is the love of the Father. That's what it means by the phrase, God, the Father, so loved the world. But it wasn't just the Father. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as, what's the next word? Christ loved the church and gave himself up to crucifixion for her. So we are justified, redeemed, reconciled to God, not only by the love of the Father, but by the love of the Son. This Paul says again in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, <clears throat> he's teaching us now how to love. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as, here's the model, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's referring to his crucifixion. Again, Paul is telling us 
that God loved us by giving himself for us as a sacrifice in our place. He gave himself up for us because of his free, unfettered, sovereign love for sinners. Now, let me belabor the point again. You say, Pastor, haven't you belabored it enough? By pointing to a passage like Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, the author of Hebrews argues this way, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, now we have the Spirit's involvement in your justification. He offered himself, that is the Son, offered himself without blemish to God, and purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The point I want you to see here is it's not just the Father, it's not just the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. They are all complicitous in your justification. This is not a fragile thing. Justification is not something you can own and lose, or you can win, or break, or throw away, or have stolen from you. Here we learn the redemption God gives us finds its origin not in the love of only the Father and the Son, but of the Holy Spirit as well. In other words, the love that motivates God to forgive and justify sinners is a Trinitarian love. All three were in on it from before the creation of the world. See, you're thinking too small. You who struggle and wonder, have I been good enough? Was I sincere enough? It's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant for your sanctification, but for your justification, it's irrelevant. Here we learn that the redemption that is ours is grounded in this incomprehensible love of God. The love that motivates God to forgive and justify sinners is the love of the Godhead, all three persons actively involved in securing your salvation, your justification, your redemption. And so I ask you, beloved, what in all eternity can be more secure than that? As magnificent as all the spiritual benefits that Paul names in this chapter as much as all of these things are, are for us and magnificent for us, the single reality that serves as the ground and anchor of our security is the unfettered, sovereign, 
love of God for sinners like you. Look with me at verse 5. This is Romans 5, verse 5. Romans 5, verse 5. Here, Paul introduces us to this love in this text when he writes this. And hope does not put us to shame because... So here's what he's saying so far. My ultimate hope is not that I'm going to rejoice in our sufferings and, and all of the other things that he lists. The ultimate hope is the final thing, that when I stand before God, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to get there and God's going to say, yeah, you were pretty good. I think you're only going to need, you know, 50 years in purgatory or a thousand. No, 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 no. Hope does not disappoint. It doesn't disappoint us or doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can be assured that everything God has promised us in the book of Romans and the whole of Scripture is our, is, all of it is ours foundationally because God actively loved us and is actively loving us. Furthermore, beginning with verse 6, Paul expounds on the objective love of God for his people. My friend, I say it again. This is the foundation of your security. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you with a free, unfettered, sovereign love toward a multitude of sinners from before the creation of the world before you ever did anything, good or bad, he set his love upon you. And yet, his love is not an impersonal, an impersonal thing. If, if, if it's beginning to sound impersonal to you, it's not. It wasn't to Paul. I'll give you one example. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says very plainly, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in, what's the next word? In me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. This isn't just an anonymous crowd that God poured out His love upon. He loves me. And you can say that if you have placed all your hope and in life and death on Jesus Christ, He loves you and always has. 
It is the anchor, the foundation, the starting point, the rock, the origin of your justification. The love of God. The love of God. And it is because of this great love that the believers in Jesus, the believer in Jesus is absolutely and eternally secure. Beloved, I realize I've taken you into the deep end this morning, but these truths are more marvelous than we can understand. I didn't have this in my notes, but if you could turn with me to Ephesians 4. And here is what Paul says, if I can find it. Mm-hmm. Yes, beginning with verse 17. This is Ephesians 4:17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is it's not necessarily love for one another, but love of God. May have may have strength to comprehend, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's message I understand that the love of God, especially in modern worship songs and in and all kinds of music, it has been minimalized and has been made a very small and fickle and unstable thing. But that is not the love of God. My friend, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are as secure as the eternal love of the Godhead is secure. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Paul isn't finished. Indeed, this is just the beginning. This was point one of five. There's much more. Specifically, Paul wants to acquaint us with four more qualities of the love of God that should prove to us once and for all that we are safe, having no reason to fear that the just and holy God will condemn us on that day. We will be rescued by his eternal love. And if this love is foreign to you, my friend, I want to invite you to receive it today by faith. Because it is freely offered to you. You say, well, I have questions. You should. And I'm not sure we'll have all the answers. But I know that this is what God has said. And I know whom I have believed, Paul said. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep everything that I have committed to him until that day. God proves his love for us. He proves his love for us. We'll talk about this next week. He proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. That's glorious. Can I just read you a, a lyric out of the song that we sang? I won't read all four verses, but you should. We sang them. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. Maybe I will read all four. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and reckon, recognize his work of love and Christ receive. I plead with you, receive him if you haven't. And if you have, rest in him. Rest. Go home today, fall on the couch, look into heaven and say, Ah, oh, finally, rest. Let's pray. Lord, we so desperately need you. And you have given us all that you are in the person of Jesus Christ. Pray, O oh Father, that you would strengthen our love for Christ in the light of what we have examined this morning, these treasures that we have been exploring, Lord, we, they, are, they, are, they are too high for us. We cannot fully attain them. But we are amazed at their glory. And so, Father, use it to change us. Empower us through it to worship you. Lord, we ask these things. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen and amen.